360Ed TV is brought to you by Rice Studios and Agility. So this afternoon we have David Parsons, who is the National Postgraduate Director at the Mind Lab in Unitech with us. David, welcome to 360Ed TV. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. It's a uh, it's a beautiful afternoon here in um, in Melbourne. I think it's a couple of hours ahead, so hopefully you've got a beer or a wine in hand, so you can sit back and uh, chill out as we talk through a few questions. Sure, sounds good. David, um, I understand the Mind Lab began as a public-private partnership that was initially concerned with um, digital literacy with uh, school kids, um, but you came to the realization that to really make significant change, you had to start changing the frameworks and I guess the scaffolds that teachers were bringing to the table. Um, can you tell us a bit about the work, what MindLab is doing and uh, yeah, what's happening? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think it's a really interesting story in a way because it's it's something that's evolved rather than, um, you know, was planned mm -hmm. from the beginning to be the way that it's turned out. I mean, as you rightly say, uh, it began as a private company. So Francis Valentine, who's a bit of a serial entrepreneur, um, has mm. you know, done a number of things before, set up the Mind Lab um, as a private company. And the intention of that was that kids would come in and they would learn to do cool and exciting things. So it would be either school holiday groups, so private things, or during term time, it was school groups coming in. Uh, they would come in, they would do science, they would do programming, they would do filmmaking, they would do kind of anything that was kind of you know, innovative, exciting, creative, all of those things that maybe they didn't get the opportunities to do in their schools. Uh, you know, we've got some great tech ed trainers and so on. And what, what happened, that was 2013, uh, what happened was that the teachers were bringing their classes in and, and seeing what was going on and kind of saying, well, you know, what about us? You know, um, how can we get into this? How can we do this kind of thing? So in order to make that happen, that's where the partnership came from. So it's really the, the two strengths. So we have like the, the entrepreneurial, innovative, disruptive approach um, that came from the Mind Lab, but we also have that very important side that Unitech, as you know, New Zealand's biggest polytechnic, bring to the partnership, which is, you know, the ability to, to deliver a an NZQA TEC funded formal postgraduate qualification. They've got all of the academic rigor and the background, the processes. Bring those two things together, and then you get this really powerful partnership where we both bring our strengths, and so we're able to offer teachers this postgraduate certificate in applied practice, which is focused specifically on digital and collaborative learning. So I'll dig in a little bit about the research piece there, but I'd be interested in how you're seeing a shift in the, oh, I guess the the minds of the teachers. How are they approaching this from an empowerment or an enable, enablement perspective? I think that's the, the great thing about this program is that, um, you know, we've now had something like 3,000 teachers through the program. I mean, there's something like 54,000 teachers in New Zealand, so we're still only talking, you know, a small fraction. But that that small fraction, you know, 3,000 teachers are teaching, you know, tens of thousands of children, are influencing many, many other staff. They're spreading the word. Um, we had a, a session. There's, there's a big conference in New Zealand called You Learn, which all the teachers go to, and that was last week. And we had uh, some of our representatives down there, and we had a kind of a get together for our alumni. 
And um, I wasn't actually there, but the people there saying it was it was just quite overwhelming that you know they, they kind of got a standing ovation from the teachers who were just Indeed. feeding back what a what a difference it's made to their lives, their practice. That you know it's it, it's really kind of changed the way they think about their profession, the way they deal with their students. Um, now, to be fair, I guess you know, that's a slightly self-selecting group, and it was in a bar, so you know, let's maybe there was a little bit of. Um, you know, encouragement. But I mean, we do get fantastic feedback. We, we do get a really sort of satisfying thing back that, that it does actually change the way people teach, the way they think about themselves, the way they think about themselves as teachers and as leaders. Um, and it really is quite a powerful transformation. And we've, we've also seen that in some of the academic research we've done. Uh, we, we had a, a, a project done by the NZCER, which is an external body, and they looked at outcomes. We did some internal research. And again, the same kind of themes come up that, you know, for most of the teachers who come on the course, it is a transformational journey. And it's one yeah. that they're, you know, really pleased to have been on. You're right. I, I spent 15 years in the primary school classroom myself, and I was doing a lot of work with the education department back in the day. We were doing some very rudimentary programs. One was called Connecting Teachers with the Future. We'd go out and we'd work with teachers right out in Longreach, so way out west. Um, and they were just on an old copper and tar kind of line with a modem. But even, even then, just to give them access to that kind of, at the time, pretty... Um, radical access uh you saw this this explosion go off in them in a sense in terms of the way that they they reassessed and re-pivoted the excitement and the interest that they brought to their practice in the classroom and that started to really reflect in the classes that they had because the kids queued into that that excitement so uh, so much because that's what kids do um mm. early this year uh, I spoke with uh, Denise Kirkpatrick, she's the Deputy Vice-Chancellor Academic at West Sydney University, and we were talking about the way in which they're trying to build a uniquely WSU experience for a very, very culturally diverse group. They're trying to do it through you know, very uh, specific and considered approaches to cultural sensitivity, the way in which they, they uh, onboard their students in a technology-rich environment often for students who are first in family coming from um, some fairly um, modest backgrounds. Uh, and they're very, very clear about how they try and do that. And I think um, Uditech has about 20,000 students. You're the biggest training vocational uh, provider. Uh, and you have a real uh, unique position to be able to embrace and leverage that cultural diversity. Um, but you'd also need to, I guess, think about how you would mitigate uh, the related impact uh, that culture and and distance uh, would play in terms of delivering a digital learning experience. Um, are there any insights you could share, uh, maybe from a cultural perspective first, uh, around uh, attitudinal differences you're, that you're seeing with uh, European New Zealanders, uh, Maori, uh, Pacific Islanders, uh, mm. and, and their, their I, I guess, uh, thoughts and needs towards digital uh, technologies? Yeah, I mean, I think that it's it's difficult to unpick because there's actually many layers here. I think one of the most important things to to start off with is that, that it should never be a deficit model. So you know, a lot of people kind of think, well, you know, it's it's you have to start from a deficit model because you know there's all this Western technology, and then we've got these indigenous peoples who for somehow are different. Um, and I, I think that's kind of the wrong 
way to start. I mean, as, as I've heard Mari say, you know, like we, we were not a non-technical people, you know, we were navigators, you know, we, we are not, we're not non-technical, but we may approach this from a different way. So, you know, we can work with these tools, but you need to, you need to allow us to work with these tools in a way that works for us. And I think that's the, the key thing. So um, there isn't a deficit model. Uh, there should be an embracing model that says, these, these are the things that we have available to us, and you should have the opportunity to explore those in ways that work for you. Um, a very simple way of doing that, for example, is that we allow our students to submit assignments if they want to in Tereo Māori, which is obviously the indigenous language. Um, so it's about just being flexible. And I think another really good example, not from my lab specifically, but from New Zealand, is that we have a new digital curriculum. Uh, it's currently in, in draft format, it's out for discussion, but it exists in two forms. So it exists in English, it exists in Māori. I think what's even more interesting about it is that there's an English translation of the Māori curriculum because the Māori curriculum isn't just a translation, it's a reinterpretation of the curriculum mm -hmm. where it tries to take into account the fact that, you know, there might be a different perspective. Um, and of course, New Zealand's unusual in the sense that it's a bicultural country. So, that, you know, because of the Treaty of Waitangi, Māori do have a different role in the country uh, than, for example, Pacifica or Asians or, or other immigrant groups that may be in the country because that treaty kind of means that, you know, it's, it's a shared ownership of New Zealand with the Crown. Um, so we do tend to focus perhaps more on, on the Maori aspect than other indigenous peoples or other immigrant groups. But certainly, you know, we have large Pacifica groups, particularly in Auckland. And again, there's this idea that, you know, it's not a deficit approach, but you do need to take into account those cultural approaches. I mean, again, another thing that comes up a lot is that um, if you have Maori students that, that want to um, express a piece of written work, it may be more narrative form than maybe you would expect from a Pākehā European writer. And again, it's just about being open to the fact that people might approach the same task in a different way and, and just embracing those differences. Um, kind of coming back again to where we, we started, where there is perhaps an issue of um, deficit. We, we do have quite a lot of um, teachers who come into our classes who come from rural areas where they're not affluent areas or we have students from the some of the urban schools again where they're not affluent areas so it is certainly the case that we might have some teachers are coming in and they've got one-to-one -one devices in their school all of their students have got a device and it's all wired up and they can use these things and then you'll have someone else who'll come along and say well you know our school's got you know a few machines that we share between everybody um, so there is there is definitely a difference in resourcing in different parts of the country um, and in different kind of demographics and that is something that we do need to continually try and address and I think again it's about okay well we have to work with what we've got you know we have to look at ways that if this if this is what you have what, what can we do with those what's the best thing that you can do with the resources that you currently have no, no thank you uh, I think you, you you're your assuming of that deficit model is a really important uh, perspective to bring to the table because it is just, as you said, uh, all cultures come with different technologies and, and they'll come with different uh, you know, strong oral traditions or whatever. How do you leverage those those strengths uh, mm. and those core capabilities of cultures? No, it's very good. No, thank you. Um, in your role as National Postgraduate Director, uh, you've got a really critical role in the way in which um, uh, 
Unitech can become a change agent in professional uh, development. And to date, I think about 800 scholarships uh, have allowed teachers to undertake postgraduate study uh, in digital and collaborative learning. And I think that would yield a lot of really rich uh, data sets uh, and some really interesting research outputs. Um, how is that uh, research starting to inform what's happening at the educational coalface? Yeah, it's a good question, actually. And in fact, you know, now we're up into the thousands because most of our students are um, fortunate enough to be given a scholarship by the Next Foundation, uh, which, as you may know, is a charitable trust in New Zealand that supports um, environmental and educational um, change. And I mean, they've been a fantastic supporter. Uh, they've also, in fact, funded some of the research that we've done. I think coming back to the, the core of your question, which is how has that research actually um, helped us to understand what we're doing and where we go next? We've done some really interesting things, actually. One of the more recent activities we've been doing is that uh, we allow our students uh, in, in various combinations to, to create their assignments using different media. Uh, so uh, they get choices, for example, between essays and videos in some of the things that we ask them to do. And one of the questions we had was, is, is there a, a downside to this? Is there any negative impact on, for example, choosing to make a video? Uh, and the other question was, you know, if, if you do an essay and or a video, how does the mark that you get, the grade for that impact on your future choices? So are you are you put off from doing other things? Um, and the, the outcome from that was that we discovered there was no difference between essays and videos. So that was good. There was no negative idea about the choice. But we were a little bit disappointed to find that even if people did well in their video assignments, they tended to drift back into the, the traditional ease of writing an essay. Uh, which, which is a little bit sad because you know we're we're all about trying to embrace you know new ways of doing things and um, the fact that the people kind of have this sort of essay comfort blanket. Uh, it was an interesting finding and it's something that you know we we would like to try and encourage them in other ways to to perhaps embrace the the different forms of expression more than than we do at the moment. So that was an interesting piece of research because it did make us realise that you can't just say, well, you know, you can you can use these other forms of assessment because people won't necessarily embrace them, even if they're good at them. So that was that was an interesting one. Another one we've, we've done, which was quite fascinating, was a crowdsourcing exercise. Um, we set up a thing called um, uh, Faces of Change. And Faces of Change was basically um, an idea that people could put in their ideas about what would, what would change in New Zealand education. Um, and we actually crowdsourced not only the data but we crowdsourced the analysis so we kind of got teachers themselves to take all of these ideas about what education could be like in the future and then to yeah. extract for themselves what they thought the key messages were and what the key relationships were and and you know to try and pick out what it was we were saying about the future and that was a really interesting exercise because what we kind of found was that crowdsourcing educational ideas about the future gives you a slightly different perspective to where you the other stuff you see so there's there's you know if you go on the line you can find reports from like international bodies or researchers about you know things to think about in the future of education and we kind of found that that crowdsourcing gave another useful perspective it wasn't necessarily better uh, but it was slightly different so it gave us like a bit more triangulation so that was also another interesting thing about you know gathering that that voice from our cohort of teachers to understand what it is that, that they think is going to be the future of education. So that again, so that was interesting. So we often find these, you know, 
we, we are an active group of researchers. All my staff are research active and a lot of the research that we do is kind of grounded in what we do here at MindLab. So we do quite a lot yeah. of work with, with students and that, that is really interesting. Comes up with some really insightful ideas. David, you've also got an interest in um, the um, publication of that research through some of the journals that you are an editor for. Is much mm. of that work coming up and bubbling into those those uh, journals? Yeah, I, I, it's the whole sort of technology education area is, is actually massive in research. I mean, it has been for a long time. I mean, some of the, the core journals like Computers and Education, um, JCAL, they've been around for a long time and they are very, very active groups. Um, so, you know, you've got Askelite, for example, in Australia. Um, you've you've got um, Association for Learning Technologies in the UK. There's lots and lots of these um, groups around, and there's a, there's a really very vibrant research community around technology enhanced learning around the world, um, and it's a really cool area I think to be researching in. I mean, I've been interested in that area for quite a long time. And, you know, it is quite a fascinating area and there's some really great research going on, some really nice ideas. Yeah. I think what's fascinating for me now um, is that I, particularly since I worked at the Mind Lab, I've been very conscious of, of when you use, when a mobile device is useful as opposed to a laptop or a tablet or um, a wearable, whatever it might be. And, I, yeah. and so the things that I've focused on particularly in recent years have been affordances and learning theories. Um, so I've kind of been evolving over, over years now, uh, this kind of discussion around what is it about learning with a mobile device that's really worth doing? Because there's a lot of glib ideas about it. For a long time, it's been kind of thought about as anywhere, anytime learning, for example, or just in time learning, the idea that you've got this thing and you can, you can learn you know, whenever you like, which is, you know, it's sort of true, but it's kind of like the tiny tip of the iceberg, I think. Um, I think the point about mobile devices now is that, well, first of all, they're incredibly diverse in terms of their capabilities. Um, um, and in order to utilize them well, you have to think about which capabilities do they have that make them better than, for example, doing something on a laptop. I would say, you know, at MindLab, 75, 80% of the things that we do with digital technologies are better on a laptop. You know, keyboard, bigger screen, et cetera, et cetera. And that's absolutely yes. fine. The important thing is to say, well, when is it that I want to use a mobile device? And the answers are, well, when your mobile device provides you with an affordance that your laptop is not very good at, like you want to go out into the world and know where you are and interact with your environment. Um, a great example of that is, I mean, obviously GPS has been around for ages and of course that, that's a very useful thing, but mobile phones have an incredible range of sensors in them now i mean most people have no idea just what a fantastic set of sensors their current yeah. mobile device has so you can go out and you can do all kinds of interesting environmental measures um, with your mobile device and um, you know the number of apps that there are now that that kind of allow you to interact with things um, in a way that you know you need to do that on a mobile device you can't really do it with a laptop um, and the other thing is the way that they work together so, for example, one of the, the tools that we use with our students is uh, ActionBound, and it's one of many tools that lets you create either indoor or outdoor journeys through different locations where you can interact with artifacts, you can create things, but they're location-based, and they might be through QR codes or they might be with GPS. But it's a, it's a typical example of where you create the activity on a laptop and you do it on a mobile device. Um, and 
really it's the cloud that's enabled us to do these things really efficiently now so we know that we can we can kind of get this um ecology if you like or this infrastructure of multiple devices all working together so that's the real power of the things that you could do now you can you can take your mobile device you can make a video you can upload it to the cloud you can drop it down to your laptop you can edit it you can push it back out to um, something on the cloud and then you can view it back on your device again it's that kind of seamless world where at, at each moment of that process you pick the tool that's most appropriate and i think that's the the, the power of these things is knowing what to use when and how to combine them together to make them the most efficient, the most useful set of tools. And so I think the, inter I, the interest I have in mobile is, you know, when, it, when are those things really cool? I mean, in the moment, of course, the big debate is when, when are wearables useful? Because, you know, wearables do fantastic things, but most of the time what they do isn't that useful. Um, you know, there's there's lots of um, things. For example, on Hololens, you know, there's there's sort of educational things, but they're really just you know 3D things that you can explore. But they're not creative tools. They're not allowing you to build. But that's beginning to come. There's a there's one of our local colleges here. Um, they've set up a lab uh, where the students can create or they, they can write the code for the sort of 3D virtual worlds that are used when you're wearing your 3D headset. Um, so that that part of it again, it's about you know, it, it's already it's all very well to have material that you can use, but what can you create? What can you build constructively? What can you create collaboratively with other people? And so to me, it's always those questions of, and I mentioned earlier on the other the learning theory. What are the what are the learning things we're trying to do? And I, to me, it's important that we identify which learning theory we're trying to leverage because that helps us think about whether we're really doing it properly. I think you're right. When we talk about, and I think if we think about the way in which online providers typically position their products, we'll be with you, we'll support you anytime, anywhere. Everything you talked about is exactly right. And that becomes the, the, I guess, the, the marketing speak for how we start to get potential students to engage with us in an online format. But quite often it's predicated on all instructional design models. It's a passive learning uh, model and it mm. doesn't take you much further than consuming content, maybe doing a little bit gamification or something. But you think about the way in which um, uh, augmented reality and the engaging with content and the engaging with data through a whole variety of interfaces and apps uh, and activities changes the whole dynamic of learning from being passive to engagement you're constructing knowledge on the fly you're building uh you know you're building concepts you're developing your own narratives and you're right you can take a, a snapshot of that as a video upload that reflect on learning a whole variety of things you can do with this little device and you'd look like an absolute numpty walking around you know town with your uh, with your laptop wouldn't you as you're going around so you're right uh, these devices give us the a discrete way, but yet very powerful way of interacting with with information and data and constructing uh, learning. So I, I think you're right. It's it's a much smarter way of approaching the technology. We talked a little bit at at the beginning of our session, just before we actually started the formal uh, uh, interview. We talked about the way in which uh, New Zealand has been quite innovative in the way that it's looked at provisioning of high 
high capacity broadband almost ubiquitously and the way in which you're engaging around um, digital uh, curriculum renewal. And in a sense, New Zealand is able to engage in the kinds of development processes that most countries would love to. And you, I guess in a sense you can do it in a more agile way than a large bureaucracy. You have a more um, uh, focused approach to how you can engage around projects and bring your mind and your focus to those. Um, and I guess I, I, I wanted to just explore for a moment uh, the work that you've been involved in in terms of shaping policy towards uh, mobile learning at national and international perspectives. Um, do you see a role for government in helping learning communities build the uh, digital and economic capabilities and capacities needed to successfully navigate the changing meaning of work and potentially the future of what work will become? Yeah, I mean, to be honest, I think it's essential for governments to take on that responsibility because the only way you're going to get a national strategy for, for example, making sure that every school has wireless broadband, um, which is linked to, you know, uh, high-speed high fibre. You know, how is that going to happen unless the government takes that on? You know, um, it, yeah, otherwise it will just be a patchwork. And, and of course, it's the, it's the less affluent areas that will lose out or the more rural areas that will lose out. So, you know, to its credit, what the New Zealand government has done over the last few years is basically make that decision that it's going to wire up the whole country and in particular it's now wired up every school in New Zealand. Um, I say wired up every school, what they've basically done is they've brought fibre to the gate for every school uh, except for the very few schools that are right out in the middle of nowhere, so the Chatham Islands for example, um, and where that where it's not possible to bring fibre they've, they've used wireless broadband um, access, satellite access, whatever they needed. Um, yep. They've also then, of course, the next bit is what happens from the school gate into the school. Um, so, again, they've also been very active in providing a series of processes to help schools to do that. There was a, a, a project called the SNUP, the School Network Object, uh, School Network Upgrade Project, and then the WSNUP, which was the wireless version. And so uh, what's been happening is that the, the government has been being very active in supporting schools to make sure that not only did they have a connection to the gate, but they could do something with that connection once it arrived. And of course, again, that doesn't solve every problem. There's still the issue of well, what devices do those students have? Um, government can't do everything. I mean, if you, if you see what's happened in some areas of New Zealand, like the Manaya Kalani Trust in Auckland, that's been very influential in driving forward a different model where They've had uh, corporate sponsorship and charities, even Will I Am came along and gave them a big check uh, to basically not just wire up the schools, but wire up the community. So uh, yes. that model of where you take your wireless, but it's not just for the school, it actually goes right out across the community uh, and making sure that there are devices. And so, yeah, the government's worked hard, communities have worked hard, charities have worked hard, um, organisations like the Next Foundation it, everybody has to come to the party, I guess, to make it work. But I think the great thing about what's happened in New Zealand is that there's been kind of a, an, a, a consensus across politics that this is a good thing. Uh, New Zealand's been looking at digital curricula and ways of thinking about the new economy for a long time. I mean, maybe, you know, and that's partly, I guess, because 
everybody's aware that it's been a very agricultural economy and you know we we do need to try and embrace a more high-tech vision of the future so all of those pieces are beginning to come into place now i think and we have a new digital curriculum um, which kind of builds on the fact that we have digital access and again all of that is kind of um, something that seems to be a consensus across different parts of society so it's generally seen as being a good thing and i think that that's a requirement but i think none of that happens without government leadership the, the ministry needs to take leadership of these things and then hopefully others will come on board if it doesn't come from the center it, it isn't going to happen and i think that that's probably true in any country regardless of the scale you know, it's, it's relatively easy in New Zealand. It's a small country, four and a half million people. It's not physically that big, although it does have some challenging geographies. Um, but, you know, the, someone does have to kind of make those decisions that we do want to make everybody or give everybody as much equality of access to 21st century tools and skills as we can. And I think that's what we've been trying to do. Yeah, I, I, I think that collective will uh, almost at a bipartisan level is really important. Um, in some of my previous conversations with um, with leaders here in Australia, we've really talked about, I guess, and um, been both bemused and somewhat despairing of a general policy vacuum uh, in terms of that nation-building uh, infrastructure development that's needed, whether that's... Um, you know, power grids here, or 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 the NBN. There's really been a uh, a lack of unifying belief in what the vision can provide to the country in terms of changing uh, the mix of industry, the changing meaning of work, and the way in which learning communities. And I, I really like the way you talked about learning communities and how they come together at that local level and start to make changes in their local economy because they're using technology in a smart way. Places like Geelong, uh, that's seen the demise of, of the car industry, uh, car building industry here in Australia. Um, South Australia, Adelaide, are going through these massive, um, in a sense, um, economic retooling. Uh, but unless you've got those pieces in place and government assistance for those big infrastructure plays, upon which things like NBN are critical, you can't really have the success that New Zealand's achieving, I think. Mm. So, cautionary tale. There you go to our, uh, our pollies. Uh, get your heads together and get this right, guys. New Zealand are not just caning us uh, in rugby and cricket, um, they're caning us in terms of their retooling of uh, their economy as well. And I think we need to uh, take lessons from our brothers and sisters across the ditch. I'll now get off my soapbox, David. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> well, I mean, one would hope that, you know, if um, if you if you do things in a situation where it's relatively easy, you might inspire people to be able to do similar things in a more challenging environment. But I mean, I think it's it's very important. I mean, you talk about, you know, areas of deindustrialization, which of course is a big problem right across the world, really. And, and what, what do you do for people? And, you know, there is this kind of bit of a truism that if you're connected to the Internet, you can work from anywhere. And it is true. I mean, and there are other, there are other things, too. I mean, one of the things that came out of one of the studies I did when I was looking at the benefits of broadband was just the idea that if you're poor, you know, if you come from a, a low socioeconomic decile, 
Um, you know, shopping online actually is something that saves you money. Shopping online otherwise only benefits the rich. You know, you still have to go to your local provider and pay whatever's there unless you can get online and, you know, shop more cheaply. So there are all kinds of subtle ways in which if you don't, if you don't provide equality of access, you simply increase the digital divide between rich and poor, haves and have-nots and so on. And that just makes the situation even worse. I mean, the thing about change is that, you know, you, you have to make a choice about, is that change going to make things better or worse? Right? Because change itself, technologies are neutral. Uh, what is not neutral is policy and what we actually do with it. So you can't you can't abdicate that. You can't, as a government or as a local government, national government, whatever it might be, or even an international organisation, you can't just say, "Well, let's just let the, let it fall as it may," because you know the chances are that the, the consequences of that is that it will make things worse. And um, yeah, and that, I guess that's the problem with neoliberalism is that you know you you can just sort of say, "Oh, well, let the market decide," but the market will decide uh, probably in a way that does not service the majority of people in the best way that it could. So yeah, I think there is a there's always a responsibility for governments to think about what the consequences of change are going to be and consider what they think the best thing to do with those are rather than just kind of let things happen, which is what obviously sometimes happens. And then yeah, all kinds of strange side effects can appear. Exactly, exactly. Look, um, the work the work that you're doing with with the scholarships is is um, incredibly important. The work that you're doing in terms of the realization of better ways to implement mobile uh, and digital literacies and technologies and capabilities within learning groups is 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 so important. I'm sorry I won't be there to actually sit down and uh, share a read with you uh, during the conference, but please make a make a point of having an extra one for me. Yeah, I'll make sure it's an Australian read. <laughs> Bless you. <laughs> David, it has been an absolute pleasure. Uh, thank you for taking the time to uh, to speak with us and to share a little about what's happening across the ditch. Uh, fantastic. Thank you, sir. Well, thank you very much.